Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. The plague of the cold has descended on your pastors, or some of us. Pastor Max is at home um, trying to recover from his cold, and I'm on the tail end of it, so if you hear this like lower gr- and our gravelly voice today, be patient with me, I'm trying. Somebody did give me a really special cough drop, and they, it came with big promises of success, so we'll see how it does. It was from Korea, Cyan. It was a Korean cough drop. They made special notice of that. Let's turn now to Philippians chapter 3, a passage we've been um, looking at now for some weeks, and we're going to look again at verses 7 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Let's read that together. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection." and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. We've been working our way slowly through this marvelous passage of Scripture, Philippians 3, more slowly than I anticipated when we started it. This is now our sixth sermon on these 11th verses. Let me try to explain why that is. I've, I've done some thinking about why, it's, why I feel the need to, to, to stop here for so long. Well, Paul is giving us here in this chapter a spiritual account, a spiritual account of his conversion. We get the historical account of that in, in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. But here we get a vision or an insight into what's going on within Paul as that happened. What changed about him in that encounter? The spiritual dynamics and equations that were being run inside of him at the time. And it's really big stuff. Really big stuff. This spiritual account of Paul's conversion is like a a short summary of Paul's entire understanding of the gospel. He can give it to us here in just a summary form because he has taught these people his gospel in person many times. They've heard, they've heard what Paul has to say many times in person. Here he's just calling it to mind in summary fashion. When he writes to the Roman church, his book of Romans, he's writing to people who have not heard his teaching or known him personally, and so he writes more fully and lays it all out, his full understanding of the gospel in detail. Here he's just calling all of that teaching to mind in a, summary and, in a summary form and also in a very personal way. Kind of a way of telling his own life story and his own conversion story. This passage is like Romans 2 through 8 summarized in a very personal way. 
And so it's really worth slowing down and making sure we kind of unpack and understand and appreciate all these great truths that Paul is bringing together here as he tells this story. I was saying to the pastors this week that um, it's been really kind of difficult to understand how to convey all the things that are going on in this passage as I see them and as I peer into it. And, and one of the pastors said, yeah, it's sort of like trying to peer into the mysteries of the universe and explain them. And it is. It is. These are great, huge truths, life-changing truths that Paul is conveying here that, and, and, and telling us about. So may God grant us hearing ears and seeing eyes and soft hearts as we peer together into his word today. Paul puts a lot of stress in this chapter on knowing Jesus personally. Knowing Jesus personally. This is something he says that is of surpassing value to everything else. It's better than having a winning basketball season, girls. I've been following my own daughter's basketball season. It's better than, knowing Jesus is better than having a winning basketball season. It's better than having good looks or a good personality or, or good breath or good grades or anything. It's better than having um, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, an awesome car, a satisfying job, a healthy retirement fund. Knowing Jesus is more valuable by far than any of these things. It, nothing in this world holds a candle to this. Jesus is something worth giving up everything for because everything, everything depends on knowing Jesus Christ in a personal and saving way. Your whole soul, your eternal soul hangs in the balance where you're going to spend eternity, whether in the bliss of heaven and God's presence or in eternal hell and torment. It all hinges on this question of whether or not you know Jesus Christ personally. So it couldn't be of, be of more importance. Paul has found the value of it, the surpassing value of it. And he wants us to find it too. And if we have found it, to hang on to it for dear life, as if everything counts. Well, what does it mean to know Jesus personally? What does that mean? It's a really important question. And there's a lot of bad thinking and bad teaching out there about what that actually means. There's, there's sentimental uh, ways of thinking about it. There's pure intellectual ways of thinking about it. What does it actually mean? How do you enter into this relationship with Jesus and carry it on? Paul doesn't want to leave us in the dark about this. So in this passage, I see that he lays out two really foundational things that are essential to knowing Jesus in a personal and a saving way. Two components to walking in a relationship with Jesus. The first component we talked about last week, that's found in verse 9. If you look at verse 9 together, we'll rem remind ourselves of what this first part was. In verse 9 we read that Paul wants to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the first, most important element or aspect of knowing Jesus Christ personally. This is the foundation stone of our whole faith, and the thing that we have to keep coming back to and making sure that we're building upon this solid foundation. I summarized it for us as knowing Christ for you. Knowing Christ for you. Knowing Him as your substitute. 
as the one who did all the things that you could never do for yourself. Pay the penalty of the law and live and uh, fulfill all the requirements of the law. Jesus has supplied everything we need in his work as our Redeemer, both his active and his passive obedience. Passively, Jesus accepted the penalty of the law for our disobedience. He accepted it willingly. He didn't deserve it, but he accepted it passively upon himself as our substitute and Savior. Actively, and this is something that gets overlooked and not emphasized half enough, Actively, Jesus went about obeying and fulfilling every particular of God's law for us. If we fail to appreciate that he did that too, then we are left with a kind of confused, muddled, insufficient understanding of the full grace of God and the glories of the gospel. Jesus fulfilled all the law for us. He is our total righteousness in every respect. There's a lot of people who think and accept willingly that Jesus died and paid the penalty for their sins and that they're forgiven past, present, and future from all their sins. And yet, because they don't understand that Jesus has also rendered all of their obedience for them already and fully satisfied all the burden of the law positively, then they're left thinking wrongly that it's up to them now, even though they're forgiven, to bring to God obedience. And if he's not satisfied with it, if we don't do enough of it, then we risk losing the salvation that we have. That's not biblical. That is not biblical. And it's contrary to the grace of God. We do not get to heaven by our obedience. We do not get to heaven by the strength of our faith, even, in Christ Jesus. There is nothing you bring that warrants you or grants you the kingdom in, in, inherent in you. Not one thing. It is all supplied to us in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There is certainly a place for obedience in the Christian life. It's of vital importance. But it is not here on the ground floor. The ground floor is Jesus and his work, satisfying all the requirements that God has for us, laid hold of by a faith that comes to us as a gift from him. This is the grace of God. I like how Vadi Bakum says that if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> if you could lose your salvation, you would. Christ has secured it for us in his completely satisfying work. That's the foundational principle of the gospel. That is the basis of our hope. And we need to make sure that we get that right and that we're building on that foundation with our lives. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the truth. Without that, we have nothing. But in Jesus Christ, we have everything. So knowing Jesus for you, that's the foundation stone of the Christian faith. And yet that's not all that Paul wants to know. There's more to knowing Jesus than knowing him as his substitute. As great as that is and as necessary as it is, there's more. He goes on to tell us what that more is here in verses 10 and following. He doesn't want to just know Jesus vicariously as his righteousness 
the righteous one, the one who fulfilled all the law. He wants to know the power of this Jesus in his life. He wants to know his power. Paul wants to know Christ in him, not just for him, but in him too. That's the second part of knowing Jesus, knowing him in you. And here's how Paul expresses this idea here. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Power is a word that is connected to personal experience. In order to understand the power of a thing, you've really got to experience it personally. Andrew Henry. Andrew, is he here? Well, a while back, Andrew gave me a call. I was on the east side of town. And he said, Jody, what are you doing in the next 15 minutes? I said, well, I'm, I'm on the east side of town running some errands. He's like, oh, shoot. I'm driving right now a Tesla Plaid. This is like the fastest electric car, the fastest Tesla car. And it goes from zero to 60 in under two seconds in its fast mode. Um, Andrew had 15 minutes in somebody's Tesla Plaid car. And he got to experience the power of that, having fun on the roads out here. And I didn't. I, I've, I've heard his account of it. I've watched some videos on YouTube to see what that would, would look like or feel like. I have not experienced the power of the Tesla Plaid. There's no substitute for getting in the seat and feeling the, the force in your body, right? We all understand that. To understand the power of something, you've really got to connect with it personally, directly, yourself. Well, that's the way it is with the work of Jesus Christ. It's not to be believed in only, but to be known and experienced personally, inwardly, and in power. It's meant to do something transformational in our lives. Paul connects this particularly to the resurrection of Jesus for good reason. He, this, is the, this is how he wants to, this is the experience or the power he wants to tap into, the power of Christ's resurrection. What is the resurrection power of Jesus? And what does Paul mean by those words? The importance of the resurrection to our faith cannot be overstated. It is of vital importance to the whole understanding of the power of Jesus in the gospel. Christ did not just live and die obediently. After that, he was raised in power and authority over all things, never to die again. In Revelation, it says that he holds the keys of death and hell. They've been given to him. He now owns death. He's in charge of even that. God has exalted him to the highest place above all rule and authority as a result of the vindication of of his resurrection in light of his obedience. And it is the resurrection that gives Christ's obedient life and atoning death its ultimate meaning and significance. This is the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection and it featured uh, prominently in their preaching because of this, because this is what gives ultimately Jesus' death its meaning and significance. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, if Christ has not been raised, then your, our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, he says. You're still in your sins if Christ has not been raised. We need a living, risen, ascended Savior. One who has entered the holy place of God and brought the evidence 
of his sacrifice up to God. The, the, he purchased our acquittal, our freedom, our forgiveness, and he brings the signs of that forgiveness, his work, up before the Father and presents it to him as our advocate. And we need him there doing that work. Paul in Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification in order to bring the, the evidence of our forgiveness to the Father eternally. And it says in Hebrews 7 that he is able to save forever everybody who draws near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession and prayer for his people before the Father. Always. He ever lives there. And we need him there doing that work. But there is more to the hope of the resurrection than that Jesus lives and that he's before the Father as our advocate. There's more. Not only do we need him there, we also need him here. We need that resurrection power in us. We need Jesus in us, in power, the power of his resurrected life. It says in Ephesians 3.17 that Jesus is, dwells in the hearts of his people through faith. He dwells in their hearts through faith. Paul has experienced that personally and in power. He writes to the Galatians in Galatians 2 and he says, I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. That was his experience. He had Christ, the resurrected Christ, in him. Paul says to the Colossians that that is, in fact, the great mystery of the gospel. The thing that has been hidden from past ages and is now being revealed in the saints and in the church is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that amazing? That's the great mystery of the gospel. Jesus could be in you. And when Christ is in us by faith, he brings to bear the life-giving power of his resurrection. That's what he does. It says in Romans 8, 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Jesus brings, as he enters into our lives, into our hearts, spiritual life, the life of his resurrection to bear in our souls, in our hearts. He makes our souls which were dead in trespasses and sins to live and to be set free by his power. How does he do that? How can Jesus be our advocate in before the Father, his body, in the body, he was resurrected and he ascended into heaven as the disciples watched him go and disappear into the cloud. How can he be up there? And also in so many of our hearts at the same time. How could he be in our heart anyway as he has taken on manhood? The answer to that is that, of course, that he does this by the power of his poured out Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room the night he was betrayed? It's an amazing thing. If I'd been there, I think I would have been completely, <laughs> I don't know, gobsmacked? Here's what he says, John 16, 5 and 7. But now I am going to him 
who sent me. I'm going to the Father. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. That's, that's amazing to think. There's Jesus right there with them, the Savior, the Messiah. It's to your advantage that I go away and leave you for thousands of years. For if I do not go away, says Jesus, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Helper that Jesus spoke of was the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, which he poured out upon his his church, upon his disciples, at the time of his ascension, shortly after that, after his resurrection. And it's by the Holy Spirit, by this power, the power that he brings the life of Jesus and he brings it into us and he causes it to, to dwell there in our hearts by faith. We talk about accepting Jesus into our hearts. That's kind of common um, speech for Christians. Talking about the gospel, we need to accept Jesus into our heart. And that's perfectly biblical, as we've seen. Jesus is said to dwell in our hearts by faith. But we need to understand what he means by that. He means that he sends his Holy Spirit into us. And that is how he comes to dwell in us. The life that the Spirit, the power that the Spirit gave to Jesus, the life that he breathed into Jesus in the grave, that vivified him and brought him back to life. He was raised in the Spirit. That same power Jesus then sends into us, breathes into us new life. And it's powerful. Compare Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, and you see clearly in a, in a string of three sentences that Jesus and the Spirit, uh, that Jesus is said to dwell in us by His Spirit. It, we move in just the, in a few words from Paul saying, the Spirit of God dwells in, our, in us, and then, who is then called the Spirit of Christ, who is then called Christ in you. Christ dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. So when Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and wants to know that resurrection power, what he means is that he wants to know the life-giving, sin-defeating, obedience-empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. That's what the power of the resurrection represents to him. I mean, it's all the theological truths of Jesus. Experientially, though, it is the Holy Spirit bringing those things to bear in his life and changing and transforming him more and more into the likeness of Jesus. The presence of, of the Spirit is powerful in the life of a Christian. Powerful. It brings about change and transformation. Mighty things. There is so much to the Holy Spirit's work that we could not possibly cover it today. Just not possibly. And when you, when you start to see that how important the Spirit is in, in the Gospel, and then the fruit of the Gospel, and the experience of Christ, you, start, you realize that this is a lot of the content of the New Testament. The Spirit features large in the New Testament. I think there's a good way, though, to summarize uh, the big things that the Spirit brings to us and does in us, and that's this. The Spirit takes everything that belongs to Jesus and He applies it to us. He brings it down and He makes it yours. 
And particularly, he takes the life that is in Christ and he makes it yours. He, may, he brings the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and he binds you to him. He brings the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and he opens the way to it for you. That's what he does. He grants those things to you as if you're your very own. And he breaks the power of sin in your life through these things. This is where Christian obedience comes in. It is the fruit of trusting in Jesus and his complete satisfying work for you. It's the fruit that comes by way of the Holy Spirit who then takes all that is in Christ, all his obedience, all his life, all his power, all his inheritance, all, all of his Father, and he brings it to bear in your life in power. Let's look at these three aspects of the Spirit's ministry in the lives of believers. The Spirit, first of all, takes the eternal life that is in Christ and He powerfully works it into us. The Bible describes our natural state as a state of spiritual death, dead in trespasses and sin, spiritual and moral death. But when we believe in Jesus, we're said to undergo a dramatic spiritual and moral change. Change that's so drastic as to be described as passing from death into life. From death to life. Ephesians 2.5 says that when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. That's the resurrection life of Jesus being worked sovereignly in you by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.11, Paul says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus, the Spirit takes the life that is in Jesus, the resurrection, powerful life, and He brings it to bear and works it in our life. That same Spirit that brought Jesus from the tomb works in us sovereignly. Jesus likens this to such a dramatic difference. He likens it to um, being born again. That's the difference. That, that's what it's like. It's like being born anew, born again. It's how he talks about it in John 3. And he likens it to the power of the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, Nicodemus, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know that wind in your life. The power of the Holy Spirit quickening you and giving you newness of life in Christ. The result of this happening by His power is new, something so new that it's called a new creation, a new man. The old things having passed away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What are the old things that have passed away? He explains in Galatians 5, those are the deeds of the flesh, the old ways of life that you used to have. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Things which keep us from entering the kingdom of heaven. Nobody that, that practices these things will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the old things, the old ways. Anybody familiar with those ways? I am. When Jesus comes in the power of his Spirit into our lives, all things become new. New. And here is the new things that come, the new fruits of the Spirit. Paul goes on in Galatians 5 to say, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the Spirit comes in and begins to work the peaceful fruit of righteous law-keeping into our regenerated lives in our hearts. And he brings about a complete moral transformation in his people, in the life of a believer. It's a dramatic thing. You can't come up with starker contrasts to describe it than death and life. Old man, new man. New creation. Do you know this life? The life of the Spirit. The life that is in Jesus granted in the Spirit. Do you know this? Have you experienced this newness of life yourself personally? This is a huge part of what it means to be known by Jesus and to know Him. To know His Spirit. Second thing the Spirit does is He takes the Father of Jesus and He binds Him to us. He makes Him our Father. And He makes our hearts to cry out with the knowledge that He is. By nature, we're children of wrath. Sons of disobedience, we're called in Colossians. Having no hope and without God in this world, we are offspring or children of the evil one, we're called in Matthew 13. That's us in our nature by birth. But the Son of God came down and He showed us the Father. He showed us the Father. And He accomplished all the work that was necessary in order for wicked sons of disobedience like us to be reconciled to Him, adopted by Him, accepted by Him in love. Perfect, undying love. He came down and He reconciled us to God and, he, and so that God could own us as His own children, His own sons, and make us fellow heirs with His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus did that, and, and the Holy Spirit, in the course of time, takes what Jesus did, and He applies it to us. He is called the Spirit of Adoption. And He comes into us, and He cries out, Abba, Father! He testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. That's what He does. And not just sons but heirs also, heirs with Jesus of all that Jesus receives. We're fellow heirs with Him according to the grace of life. He testifies that to us too. He is called a pledge of our inheritance. That's the name of the Spirit. A pl the pledge of our inheritance. The presence of the life-giving, life-changing presence of the Spirit in you is a pledge of glory to come your full inheritance in the kingdom of God. You may look at it and you think, but it's so small. 
and I feel so far away from that in my actual life. It's okay. He's only given you a pledge. And he intends to work that pledge out more and more in strength over the coming days. But it's not the fullness. It's just the testament, the pledge, that you belong there. And when Christ appears, he, you will be like him in glory by the power of God. Jesus comes and he binds us to the Father in our hearts, he makes us to cry out to the Father and he testifies within us that we're sons of him, that we belong to him. And this gives us the freedom knowing that we are, we are God's children and we can't do anything to cause him to, to, to reject us because of how, how perfect the work of Jesus was to reconcile us. From that, we have the power through the Spirit to live as, of what we are, sons of God, obedient sons. Do you know the Father personally? Does the Spirit cry out in your heart and testify that you're a son and a daughter of God? The Holy Spirit, thirdly, takes Christ's kingdom and he transfers us into it. Breaking the power of sin in our lives in the process. Christ came preaching a kingdom. A kingdom that's not of this world. A kingdom where righteousness and peace and truth reign. A kingdom of glory. A kingdom so powerful that the gates of hell cannot stand against it. And outside of Christ, we are outside that kingdom. Apart from him, we are a part of this world and the kingdom of this world. We're ruled over by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. By nature, as a part of that world kingdom, we are, uh, we are enemies of God. Enemies of God. Living under Satan's tyrannical rule and control in our lives and bondage to sin under his control. But Christ, by his death, has overcome the evil one. He has bound the strong man, he says. And he's entered his house and he's, and he's plundering him of all, of, his, of all that are his. Christ is taking back those the Father has given him. And he's doing that work by the Holy Spirit. One by one, in the course of history, he is coming down into the kingdom of darkness and he is plucking out souls for himself. And he transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's what God is doing by his Spirit. Christ's kingdom is a free kingdom ruled by Him. He is the Lord of it. Sin has no power or authority or force in His kingdom. And if by the Spirit we have been made citizens of the kingdom of God, then we are no longer slaves of sin. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. This is why we read it this morning. I would encourage you all to read Romans 6 a number of times this week and grapple with how decisively free you are from sin. According to God's testimony and the, and the pledge of that in your life by the Spirit.
It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That freedom becomes ours by the Spirit. Wherever He is, there is liberty from sin, freedom from it. How much liberty has the Holy Spirit provided to His people? How much? A little bit of liberty? No, total freedom. So total that while you once were a slave of sin, now in Christ Jesus, you are a slave of righteousness. You are as bound to obey God as you once were bound to sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we have died in the death of Jesus. We ourselves have died to sin in the death of Jesus. And so we are as free from sin as a dead man is from the cares of this world. He says not only that we're dead, but that we've been buried with Christ in, through baptism into that death so that we might be raised in him to newness of life, into the freedom and the power of, to live righteously and obediently before him. We're going to consider ourselves dead to sin. And it does take considering, doesn't it? You have to consider these things and view yourself in these ways to take hold of, by faith, the power of God. But we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, free from bondage to sin, and now slaves to righteousness. That's the freedom of Christ's kingdom, and it's true liberty. Do you know this liberty in your life? Have you come to experience it and taste it? Do you know the overcoming power of, in your life of, uh, in your daily fighting against sin, of, of the freedom that is yours in Jesus, provided by the Spirit. You know, not every professing Christian has the Spirit. Every true Christian does. But not every professing Christian is a true Christian. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did I not know you? Did you not know me? And he says, no, I don't know you. Get out from here. Not every professing Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every true Christian does. There are many who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. A form of godliness, but deny its power. That's Paul in 2 Timothy 3.5. Some of us deny it outright. We just don't believe that there's any transformational power in the gospel. We've seen too much of human nature. There's a lot of ministers like this. Seen a lot of people and they put up with a lot. And they're cynical. I know people like this. And that's a denial of the power of, the, of God. The power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change. Those who call themselves, there's a movement now of people who call themselves gay Christians. I'm not trying to pick on them on that particular sin today, but they're out there claiming this. This is their terminology. I'm a gay Christian. That is a denial of the power of the Holy Spirit to change a life. It's a, taking something that God hates and claiming it as part of who I am in Christ. It's blasphemy, and it's a denial of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to, it's to take on a form of godliness while objectively clearly denying its power. 
More of us, though, I think, deny this power by taking on the name of Jesus and not living any transformed life, not living out of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's the more common way that we deny the power. We take the name of Christ, but we don't have transformation. We don't have, a, we don't have vitality spiritually in us. There's still just deadness there. We don't have victory over our sin. It's all defeats. It's all bondage. There's no freedom that we've been given or experienced in Christ Jesus. We just go through the motions. We try our best to fit in with everybody else. And we wonder what's wrong. Is there spiritual vitality and freedom in your life? This is the second part of what it means to be in a saving relationship with Jesus, not just to know him for you, but flowing directly from that. And as a function of what Christ has done, he purchased the right to dispense the Holy Spirit into the lives of his people, and he does so as they believe on him by faith. In fact, that spirit is already there granting you the faith to believe as you do. And this is what it means to have him. To know Christ for you is to have the Holy Spirit in you. You can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you don't have his presence in some measure and power in your life, then you have yet to know Christ for you. Those two things go together. Christ for you first and him in you by the power of his Spirit second. Maybe this is troubling to think about. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, uh, as somebody said to me uh, this week in counseling, I was, just, I was just reading some of these scriptures. It wasn't me. They were complaining with. They're just reading the Bible. And they said to me, you're saying that Christ defeated the power of sin and that he has brought newness of life to bear in us. But it doesn't feel like that's true. It doesn't feel like that's true. I don't see it. I don't experience it. So what? I'm struggling. Is it true? I'm not sure what I believe anymore. I, that's honest. I love honesty. Honesty is great. It's helpful. Now we can bring truth to bear where it really matters most. Paul proclaims these things to be true. Independent of how you feel. That was my response on the fly. They're true. And we're to grab hold of them by faith. And we experience them in faith. Paul believes these things. He sees them as decisive. He sees the freedom as total and complete and achieved. He, he sees life. When he sees life, spiritual life, he, he sees total life. But he's also realistic about what this actually looks like in the course of life on a day-to-day -day basis, okay? The Apostle Paul is not like a Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky, idealist, ditz brain. He lives life with people and himself. He understands. Whatever it is that Paul says he goes about seeking to know and to experience in power is something that is not just for the elites, the specialists, 
It's for, the, it's for everybody who claims the name Jesus. It's available to all who look to him in faith. That's what Paul has in mind here, okay? And he understands realistically what that means. And he's going to go on in the, the coming verses to explain that he knows that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven and that there's many battles to be fought and sometimes we lose. Okay? And yet he still writes Romans 6 as if the victory's been achieved and he'd have us believe it and live out of that in power. Afresh each day. We're going to come back to that question next week. That's kind of the big focus of next week's message as, we, as Paul takes us through what he understands to be the normal experience of these things in the day-to-day life of believers. It's powerful, but it's not all accomplished. Okay? But for today, I just want to leave you with this question and hopefully this hope and direction. If you fear that you don't have the Holy Spirit and you hear what I'm talking about and you think that I don't have that power in my life, what should you do? What should you do? There is no power to change or be transformed apart from this Holy Spirit in you, Christ in you by His Spirit. If you lack this power, this transformational power, this liberating power, then what? Go to Christ. Go to Jesus. Go to Christ. He is the one who imparts this life-giving power. He has this authority. He grants the Spirit without measure. He's the one who by his blood purchased the right to dispense the Holy Spirit as he pleases. So go to him. You need to deal with him. You need to go to Jesus. You need to look on him who was pierced. You need to trust yourself finally and fully to him. Give up your own hopes of your own righteousness. Confess your total need of Jesus Christ and look to him in faith. And he will give you this good gift. Remember what he said about the Father? The Father loves to give good gifts to his children, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. So go to Jesus. He brings you to the Father. And him and the Father together will give you this gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, for its power and authority. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings all that is Jesus and and gives it to us. And I pray, Father, that you would bless us today with this gift. And those of us who have him, the Spirit already, grant him to us in fuller measure. May our experience of you be powerful and transforming. Thank you for the Spirit and the promise that he represents to us of eternal glory and eternal life. Help us to have faith. In Jesus' name, amen.